All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter, by the way, uh, uh, Nick and Stephanie are actually, Pastor Nick and Stephanie are down in, uh, at Hope Fellowship in Hillsboro, Oregon with Bobby Gaither, who preached here a while back. Uh, and so he, we swapped. So he's down there and I'm speaking here. So we kind of swapped and we're uh, helping out our sister church down there. So, uh, but Luke chapter 6 is what we're going to look at today. We're, we're continuing a series that Pastor Nick began called, What Does Jesus Demand from the World? And it's really a series of messages that hone in on one aspect of the Great Commission. Jesus said, when he spoke the Great Commission, he says, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's a big word, everything, right? Uh, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so, This series is basically asking and answering the question, what are the things that Jesus has commanded us, and how do we actually obey them? And today, we're going to look at a very significant subject, I think a challenging one, I think you'll find, hopefully, uh, as I did. Uh, And it made me think about, it made me think about Mark Twain, the author Mark Twain was once asked a question. He said, uh, someone asked him, he says, don't you have a problem as a Christian with all those verses in the Bible, all those parts of the Bible that you don't understand, doesn't that create a conundrum for you? And Mark Twain said, uh, no, I'm not, <laughs> it's not the, prob- the, the passages in the Bible that I don't understand that cause me uh, to have problems. It's the passages I do understand that actually cause me a lot of problems. And I'm just going to tell you right now today, this text right now today, this command that Jesus has given us is one of those texts. This is, this is one of those texts that I don't think we think about enough as Christians. In fact, it's one of those texts that we oftentimes read it and we begin to describe it and we put a lot of, uh, uh, if I could say this, we put a lot of buts in front of it. We say, yeah, Jesus said that, but, you know, we try to explain all kinds of things away. But I want us to just look at it today and see it for as radical and challenging as it really is. And just let God change and, and transform our hearts because he's going to introduce today in this passage, Jesus is introducing to his disciples in that day and to us a very radical ethic here, a very radical way to live. Uh, and so listen to these words. Uh, we're going to stand as I read them. Uh, it's a way of us just honoring God's word. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27 through verse 36, just, just get your mind and heart to a place for a moment where you could just hear, hear what Jesus is saying to us here. And let it, let it kind of soak in to your heart here this morning. Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others, others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners can do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, then what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Father, this is a radical command. This is way above any of our pay grades here this morning. This is a really big text and a really big challenging thing that Jesus is commanding us to obey. And so God, we need your spirit today to work. Even as I speak these words and we talk about this passage, God, we need you to help us today. And so Father, would you please speak to us through your word. Give me the right words to explain this. And Father, would you give us ears to hear that we would comprehend and understand and be transformed by this reality. And we pray in your name. Amen. You can be seated. There are many reasons why people hate Christians. Many reasons. Um, They're not new reasons. But there are many reasons why people look at Christians and hate them. Uh, In fact, you could almost argue historically, by sheer numbers... Uh, you, could, you could probably argue that Christians are one of the most hated people on the face of the earth. That you may not even realize, but over 100,000 Christians are killed around the world every single year. Some of them have been our missionaries this year. We've lost two. And, and so Christians have, there's lots of reasons why people hate Christians in the Bible, and in order to get to this text that Jesus is going to give us, I want to just set this up by wrestling with a few of those reasons. The, in First Peter chapters three and four, you can go and read the whole thing later on. But in First Peter chapter three, starting in verse seventeen and going all the way through chapter four to somewhere in the middle, chapter verse eight, in that passage, Peter begin he talks about the fact that we are those who suffer at times. And in fact, he even says that some of you suffer for doing good, for doing righteous things. And he says, that is to your honor. That's a blessing. Count yourself blessed if you suffer for doing right. But he also warns that if you suffer for doing evil, for doing bad stuff, he doesn't say it this way. This is my interpretation. He's like, that's on you. Like, like if, you, if, if you're not nice and you suffer for it, that's your deal. Like, that's, there's no reward in that, right? And so Peter is wrestling through this. He's saying, you should suffer for doing right, but, he says, if you suffer for doing evil, for doing wrong, look, uh, that, there's no reward in that. And so let me just give a few reasons based on First Peter. Uh, without reading the text, you can read it later, but let me just give a few things. That, that Sometimes we simply suffer for bad reasons, and there's no reward. So let me just start with the bad. Sometimes we suffer because we really are just arrogant jerks. As Christians, right? We just really are full of ourselves. We, we're always angry. We're always negative. We're grumpy. We're mean. We can be opinionated. We can be quick to speak and very slow to listen to people and actually care about them. We can be incredibly judgmental. And I don't mean judgmental and discerning right from wrong. I mean looking down your nose at people and, and, and looking at people as if they're just idiots and foolish, Right? We can be those kinds of people. We can, we can always think that we are actually right about everything that we think, <laughs> right? So I think Peter maybe is throwing those things into the category of if you suffer for being that kind of a person, you need to repent. Like, you need to repent. If that's you, if I described you today, then you need to repent. That is not, you're not suffering for doing good. But we do suffer, Peter says, for doing good. 
for doing righteous things. Christians over the centuries and even to this day suffer because they care for the down and out and the poor. They care about the hurting and the suffering and the vulnerable. Did you know in the first century in the Bible that the Christians were hated because they were the group that came along and actually took care of widows and orphans? They were known for it and they were, they were despised because of it because widows and orphans in the Roman culture were nobodies. Who cared about them? Usually if you were a widow, you were subjected to poverty or sex trafficking or any kind of, of ill of the society. It was, it was a terrible thing. And so the church came along and they took care of the most vulnerable. They, they took care of the orphans and the widows and they were mocked and ridiculed for it. They take care of those who are abused, those who are taken advantage of in society, the church. Christians are to take care of them, and oftentimes we are ridiculed and made fun of for it. We often are hated because of our virtue. Our actual moral integrity annoys people. You ever think about that? Let me put it into a term that you might understand. You're sitting around with a bunch of, your, a bunch of people that you know really well, because I hope you do this. If you don't have a story like this, you need to have one next week because you need to be friends of sinners. But you're sitting around with a whole bunch of sinners, a whole bunch of people. And when I say sinners, this, this is the same way that Jesus is using it. It's simply someone who cares less about God. It doesn't mean that you and I sitting here aren't sinners. It just means that there are those who hate God and don't want anything to do with God. And there are those who love God and, and want to live their life for him. And so you're, you're the person who loves God and you're sitting amongst People who could care less about God and they're doing things and saying things and speaking in ways and acting in ways that are just to, to, your, to your senses, to your sense of who God is and his holiness and his righteousness, it's making you sick. And you're, you're, you're literally inside. I, I, I've been in one of these conversations a couple weeks ago where there's just racist jokes being talked about. There are foul things being said about women in this group and it was literally making me sick to my stomach. Right? And you're sitting in this conversation, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 says, those people are surprised because you don't join in in the same debauchery that they are enjoying and involved in. They're surprised by it. They're, like, then they, they're offended that you're not actually laughing at those kinds of things, that you're not actually joining into those kinds of things. And, and, and you don't, you're not even judging them for it, Right? You don't even have to say anything. I think some of us feel like we have to. No, your very presence is offensive and annoying to them because they feel uneasy. Like, why is he not laughing at that joke? Why is he not joining? Why does he not talk about his wife in that way? Why does she not talk about her husband in derogatory ways? What, what is up? Why is his mouth not foul? People are annoyed by it, and they often will hate you for it. They hate your convictions. Your convictions are repugnant. The fact that you confidently believe certain things with absolute certainty drives the kingdom of this world crazy. Your singular belief as a Christian that we just mentioned on this board, that we just said the Apostles' Creed, the singular belief that we believe in one God, we believe in one Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is the only way of salvation, he is our only hope, is absolutely a stench to many in this culture. It drives people crazy. And people, because of these beliefs and because of simply who you are and what you represent, people are beheaded around the world for this. People are beaten and imprisoned. 
We have a missionary in India whose daughter was hacked to pieces and thrown out into the woods because they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here in America, those things may not happen, but we are maligned, we are misrepresented. I don't know about you, but doesn't that drive you crazy when somebody misrepresents who you actually are, what you actually believe? They, just because I disagree with you, they assume that I'm a bigot and I'm hate, hateful and horrible. We're misrepresented, we're mocked, we're discriminated against. You could lose your job today simply because of who you are. So the question is, so if I set that up well enough, <laughs> everybody's like really somber right now. Like, yeah, that was a somber list, right? But it's a reality, right? It's a reality. In fact, when I first became a Christian, it drove me crazy. I would watch, I would watch uh, you know, movies, and all of a sudden I had a different set of eyes, and I realized like, the religious person in the movie is always the one who's an idiot, right? He's always portrayed as the doof, the guy who just fumbles over, judgmental, horrible, all the things. I just like, you know, like, that's the way the world views us. But the question is, how are we to respond? What do we do about that? Our natural response is to hate our enemies, isn't it? That's your natural response. You may not admit that this morning, but, but you know that in your heart of hearts, it is, it is our natural response is to not be nice to those who hate us and who mistreat us and misrepresent us and slander us wrongly, right? That is not our natural response. We hate what they do. We hate what they stand for. We hate their ideas. And inevitably, if we're not careful, we will begin to hate people. And Jesus demands something radically different from us. He demands something that is so radical He's saying, in fact, it's not just that you're supposed to force a smile and mind your own business when you're hated and mistreated and mocked and slandered and threatened. No, he, he actually says that we are to actively seek to do good towards those who hate us. That's what this passage is actually saying. He's not simply saying, just be nice and put on a smile and go your own way. Kind of the, what is it that shows the little cartoon, smile and wave. You know, not that kind of thing. No, no, no. No, he's actually saying we are to actively pursue those who hate us. We are to actually love our enemies. That's what he's saying. That's the command. We are to love our enemies. And the word that he uses there, the word love, there's several words if you know in Greek for the word love. The word he's using there is the word agape kind of love, which is the love that is oftentimes and most oftentimes used to describe the kind of love that God has for us. He says to us that you are to love those who hate you, who mistreat you, who malign you, who mock you. You are to love them in the same way that God has loved you. And he says we're to love our enemies. Who are our enemies? Who are they really? I think it's easy for us to have nameless, faceless enemies. We could say it's, it's the state out there. You know, it's the maybe government at some level you feel like. Or maybe it's this, this, some, some entity out there somewhere. But let me, let, me, let me bring it closer to home for us. And then we're going we're gonna to go through this text. Um, I think our enemies are far more close to us than we think. The real enemies, I think, that actually challenge us are the ones that we know really well. The real enemies are those who have either hurt us or been hurt by, by us, perceived or real. Either way, it's a parent. It's a son or a daughter. 
It's that coworker who looks for ways to make fun of you or make a jab here or there. It's your neighbor who drives you absolutely insane and treats you horribly. It's your boss. It's oftentimes people who are actually close to us more than we know. It might even be somebody sitting in this room right now. So what can we actually do to love our enemies? To love those who truly hate us? Well, it's not just a matter of being nice or thinking nice thoughts. It's being so radically transformed by the gospel that we can love a world of despicable, God-hating, foul-mouthed, lying, cheating, stealing, selfish people and we can love them the same way that God has loved us because that list is us. So, how do we do it? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us. <laughs> you guys, this is like really somber in here. and I, I get this is like a somber message, but I'm like, whew, I can almost feel the weight of, of the, the room here a minute. Um, Jesus says three ways to love your enemies. Here's three ways. Do good to those who hate you, verse 27. Do good to those who hate you. And again, this isn't a passive action. Jesus is saying, you go seek. Like, this is an active verb here. Do good to those who hate you. They, they treat you poorly. You don't, re, you don't respond in kind. You find ways. Think up ways. Be creative and do good to those who hate you. I, um, I had somebody who didn't like me at all and, uh, uh, back in South Dakota where I was a pastor and would try to avoid me at all costs. And when I saw this person in the grocery store, I hunted them down. <laughs> right? And, and it wasn't like some vengeful thing because obviously, like Paul would tell us, that's not the, the way to go about this. But it was simply a way to go, I'm going to go find this person and I'm going to say hi and ask them how they're doing. I'm going to try, I want God to make me genuinely care about this person who frankly hated my guts. That's a whole long story. <laughs> Do good to those who hate you. Find ways. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. To curse someone means that you are wishing ill upon them. That you hope that their job fails, you hope that their family fails, that their health fails, fails, you hope that their church goes down, you actually are, are wishing ill upon somebody. And Jesus says, for those who do that to you, bless them and don't curse. Bless them. Find ways to actually bless them. They are, they are hoping for your ill for your downfall, you are hoping for their family to prosper. You are hoping that their job will go well. You are actually wanting for them to, to do really good in life. You're not wishing ill upon people. But you're actually finding ways to bless them, to speak words even of blessing. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those, in verse 28, pray for those who abuse you. That's just crazy, right? Pray for those who abuse you. By the way, uh, to abuse you simply means to be mistreated. It could be physical, it could be verbal, it could be any kind of way. This is really a crazy thing. When next time you're in a, a fight with someone, stop yourself and pray for them in the middle of it and see how that goes. 
See if you can hang on to your same petty argument, right? After coming before God and actually praying for those whom you are arguing with or fighting with or having a problem with. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Let me give you two examples of this in the Bible. The first one is Jesus, <laughs> the one speaking these words, right? He's on the cross. He's been nailed to a cross, and the very people who have nailed him to the cross are standing there watching him die, right? It's, it's, it's a horror upon horrors to think about. They've driven nails into his hands and feet, and he's bleeding there, and they're watching him die. And what does Jesus say? He says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That is crazy talk, right? The very people who nailed him there, he's saying to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the reality is we know they knew exactly what they were doing, but they didn't know what they were doing. Big picture. They were killing the Son of God, right? Or think about this, Stephen, one of the disciples, Stephen, who's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, which means they, they took him out to the edge of town and they threw big rocks at him until he dies. And as he's on his last breath, down in verse 66 of chapter 7, the very last verse of chapter 7, he says to them, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Think about how crazy that is. If you and I, you're getting stones thrown, crushing your skull, and the very last words that you have on the face of this earth is that you say to your attackers before God, Father, don't hold this sin against them. That's that's what it means to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to give three more ways to love your enemies. He says, give to everyone. Well, actually, first of all, he gives two examples. I forgot about the examples because you got to do this because this is the ones we know, right? Verse 29. He says in verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also or turn the other cheek and let him hit it also. By the way, uh, we often think of that as a fight, right? We think somebody's coming up to us, closed fist, and we're going to go at it and they're going to whack us in the face, right? That's not what this is talking about. This is actually talking about, in their culture, if you were disgusted by somebody, a way of shaming them was simply to, pfft. it wasn't even hard, it was just kind of like pfft. a little slap on the face, a little backhand, and it was a way of actually shaming them, right? And so, and so Jesus says, hey, if, if somebody comes up to you, and they're disgusted by your life, and they give you that little backhand slap, turn the other cheek also and let them hit it. In other words, endure the shame, ironically, because Jesus endured your shame, Right? He went to the cross and endured your shame, the shame of your sin upon himself. He says, turn the other cheek. Let him slap it too. It's okay. You've got Jesus. I think it actually, in our culture, there's not that little backhand slap. It's a lot different, right? We have ways of shaming each other. You've been shamed. There's all kinds of ways, some, something that somebody says to you, some, some way that somebody speaks to you at work all the time or keeps you, keeps you back or whatever. We have all kinds of ways of doing this. And Jesus says, hey, if somebody's treating you that way, just trust him. Turn the other cheek. He says to the one who takes your cloak, which would be like a, for us, it would be like our jacket. He says to the one who takes your cloak, give him your tunic also, which would be like your shirt. So you give him your jacket, Jesus says, why not just give him your shirt off your back as well? Just give, and why can you do that? Well, because our treasure's not on this earth, right? 
This is not my, this is not my treasure. My, I have a greater treasure in heaven. So what is a shirt, right? Let your enemy have your shirt. Who cares? Let them have it. Verse 30, he talks about how we're to act towards those in need. And again, remind you, this is our enemies who are in need. <laughs> He's not talking about our buddies. He's talking about how we love those who are in need, meaning our enemies. He says, give to everyone who begs from you, verse 30. Give to everyone who begs, which the word begs there, we tend to think of a certain thing in our culture of a homeless person maybe on the corner of the street. That's not what it would have been here. He's saying that when your enemy comes up to you and has a legit need and he asks you to meet that need and you have the ability to meet it, Jesus says, meet it. Do it. Every time. Notice he says that? Give to everyone, every one of your enemies who asks you. If you have the ability to meet their need, meet it. He says, from the one who takes, verse 30 there, from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. By the way, there, he's actually talking about lending somebody something. He's not talking about so much the thief. He's talking about when you, if you give something to somebody and they don't give it back, don't demand it back. In fact, <laughs> we're going to find out in a moment, you should give it to them and not expect it back. And again, because your treasure's not in heaven. This stuff that you have, that you loan to them, it's just temporary stuff, right? It's not the most important thing. He says, so if someone takes away your goods, don't demand it back. Let them have it. In fact, you might say, with the previous uh, illustration, you say, give him more. <laughs> give him more. Anybody uncomfortable yet? And then we have what's the so-called uh, golden rule. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so, unto, do so to them. Very simple command, right? Treat people the way you want to be treated. Seems so, so simple, but so hard to do, right? Actually, it's amazing. The, the actual command is the same as Jesus says when he says, love your neighbor, how? As you love yourself. That's the same command as it is here. Treat people the way you want to be treated. He says, love God and love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. How do you love yourself? You feed yourself. You're going to eat lunch here today. You're going to nourish your body. Uh, you, might even, you might even bless yourself every once in a while, and you go get that double shot mocha, right? And you bless yourself. You do good things for yourself. Um, all because, he says, in the same way that you treat yourself and you want to be treated, treat other people. Love your neighbor in the same way that you would love yourself. Treat people the way you want to be treated. You like to have grace, grace and mercy. You like to be given the benefit of the doubt. Give other people the benefit of the doubt. Treat them with grace and mercy. Be generous with people. That's the way you want to be treated. Boy, what a difference our whole conversation and culture would be this very day as we near an election if we could only obey these things, right? Honestly, if just the Christians, those of us who say that we're Christians, if just us would actually obey these commands, what a difference it would be in our culture. We, would, we should be those who are merciful and loving and giving versus revengeful, unloving, and stingy. Let me make it a little closer to home before we get to some good news. When we see people on the news screaming and looting and burning down businesses what do you think of them? 
what thoughts come to our mind? This one really just smacked me between the eyes this week. How do I think about them? What's the first description that would come out of my mouth towards them? I can tell you that the descriptions I hear, thugs, is the first one that comes to mind. I've, heard, I've even heard in conversations, they should all just be killed. Right? They should all be in jail. And the reality is, that could very well be true. Right? But think about this. How did Jesus look at the crowds? What did Jesus do? This, this just hit me this week. Jesus saw the crowds. These people that were only there because they saw a miracle in this story that I'm re- referring to. They only there because Jesus did some miracles and they were kind of just like wanting to check it out. And Jesus sees this whole crowd of people that were there with ill motives. They didn't care about him. They wanted to see some cool stuff. And Jesus saw them, he says, as helpless, as sheep without a shepherd. It says he had compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw what their real need was and he had compassion no matter what their motives were, no matter what, their, what they were doing, right or wrong, he knew what their real need was and he had compassion on them. They needed a shepherd. They needed a savior. So how are we supposed to do this? So it's pretty serious things, right? How are we, mere mortals, supposed to love people who hate us like this? I don't know about you, but none of this comes natural to me. All of this is challenging to me. I don't have any, there's nothing in here that somehow feels good and comfortable to us in our flesh. How are we to treat others? How do we do this? Uh, Let me just get to the last thing, gospel motivation. Jesus then goes on in verses 32 to 36, and he's going to compare and contrast two ways of loving. There's two kingdoms, right? There's a kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of this world. And he's saying there's a certain kind of love that this kingdom that we live in, this is a certain way that people love. And he says, but, but we're not representing this kingdom. We're citizens of another kingdom, and we represent a whole different way of actually loving. And so Jesus is going to give this sense. He, says, he, he gives this contrast. He says, if you love those who love you, see, this is the world's way of loving. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Right? That's easy. That's a no-brainer, right? Those who, those who love me and love, I love them, they love me, there's this reciprocal thing. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing supernatural needed in that moment. That's normal. He says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners, in other words, even those who are godless can do this. You don't need the Spirit of God in you at all to simply do good to people who also do good to you. He says, if you lend money, to those, and you expect to get the same amount back. <laughs> what, what benefit? Like, what, so what? <laughs> like, does, isn't that exactly the way the world is? Right? I do something for you in order that I can then cash that in at some point, and you will do something for me. Like, you owe me, right? You owe me a favor. You, I, I've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing for you because it's going to come back around at some point, and I'm going to call, call you out and go, hey, remember when I did that? I want this. We are a people who are always doing things in order to receive and to take and to get. It's normal. You fight with it in your marriages, <laughs> with your children, right? That's a, that's a sinful reality in our lives. We always are looking to get. 
And Jesus says, but Jesus is giving us a very different reality. He says, that's the love that the world has. He says, anybody can love in that way. He says, but I tell you, verse 35, love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Expecting. Here's the key. Expecting absolutely nothing in return. You want to love people? You want to lend something to people? Lend and give and do good and love them and expect absolutely nothing in return. He says, in fact, he says, uh, and your reward, if you do that, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Meaning, he's not saying anything there about how we're justified or made right with God. He's simply saying, you will be a representative. You will, you will show that you're actually belonging to God, right? Because when you love in this way, you are actually displaying who God is. And why do we know that? Because, he says, he goes on and says this incredibly challenging statement. He says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. So when we are kind to the ungrateful and to the evil, we are actually acting like God, And in fact, it goes even further, we are actually acting in the very same way that God has acted towards you and me because we are the ungrateful and the evil ones whom God, by his mercy, has come down and saved us. Undeserving sinners. And so he's he's pouring out this this reality. He's saying, saying, love your enemies, don't expect anything in return. In fact, what's beautiful about this is that when God loves, it is absolutely pure because God doesn't need anything from you. You can't give anything to God in the first place, right? It says, uh, who's ever given to him, Paul says, that that he should somehow repay them, right? You can't give anything to God. God has all that he needs. And so when God loves you, it is purely out of his absolute grace and decision to do so. It is absolutely uh, free, right, of any need to get something from you. And he's saying to us, we ought to love in that same way. We ought to be those who are kind to the ungrateful and kind to the evil, right? We're kind to them because that's exactly what God has done towards us. We are freed like God in order to be able to give. In fact, doesn't the Bible say that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us when we were his enemies, when we didn't deserve anything but his wrath and his judgment. God died for us. He gave his son for us. And lastly, uh, in verse 36, he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful, meaning... Be merciful to other people as your father's been merciful. To be merciful means that you don't give people what they deserve. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? He's saying, this is what God has been towards you. He did not give you what you deserve. You deserve his punishment and his judgment and his wrath because you and I are sinful people who've offended a holy God. And yet, God didn't give us what we deserve. Instead, God sacrificed his very own son so that you wouldn't get what you deserved. And in fact, you would get grace. You would get what you don't deserve. Amen. And, so, and so he's saying, if the only way that you and I can love in this way is we have to press into that truth. We have to know this truth. If you don't understand God's love in that way, if you don't realize how incredible God's love is towards you, you will be the jerk. 
You will be harsh to people. You will be hard on people because you, you don't understand how incredible it is that God loves you. That God has given you mercy and grace instead of wrath and judgment. That he's given you life. But there's a cost to this type of love. It will cost you your reputation. It could cost you physical harm, possessions, money, labor. It could cost you a lot. In this passage, all those things are there. There's a cost to this. There's always a cost to the one who loves. But it's worth the cost. He says there will be a great reward. Let me just end with a story that illustrates this. Um, up on the screen here in a moment, there's a, there's a picture uh, of two people. That's Carolyn and Jordan LeBeau. And Carolyn was a member of my church. In fact, uh, when we planted a church in Hartford, South Dakota, a little town of 2,000 people in South Dakota, and we had our very first service in the park, Carolyn lived across the road, and she, she came over, walked across the street, saw us over there, and, and came to our service. And Carolyn trusted in Christ that day, gave her life to Jesus, and my wife uh, began to uh, disciple her and teach her God's word, and there were lots of, lots of challenges in Carolyn's life, a single mom at that point involved in an abusive relationship. And we walked with Carolyn for years, and every time, every week when Christy would have Bible studies with her, I would babysit Jordan. And uh, since the time he was yay high, um, he's about 19 right there probably. And about two years before I moved here, I got a call at midnight in the middle of the night, and I was asked to come to the sheriff's department and I went to Sioux Falls to the sheriff's department, and here's Carolyn sitting there. And here's a whole bunch of police officers gearing up with, with their bulletproof vests and weapons. And they're having a briefing. They're getting ready to go out. They're naming names because Jordan has been murdered. And they're naming names of houses that they're going to go to and kids that they're going to go and question at 1 o'clock in the morning. And these are kids that I know in my youth group. These are parents that I know who are going to get knocked on their door with guns drawn. It was a serious moment, a horrible situation. We slept at her house, took care of her other daughter, Morgan, did everything we could to care for her and walk with her through this difficult time. And we sat with her. I went to all of her court cases. Every sentence, there were four young boys who ended up being a part of murdering, and a girl, part of murdering Jordan. And one of those was our neighbor boy, but lived behind us. And we sat through every court case, every, every sentencing, we were there, and Carolyn would get up on the stand, and she would share the gospel so beautifully and clearly. She would speak right to the, the people who killed her son, and she would speak to them, all four of these boys, all of them... 17 was the one who pulled the trigger up to 21. And she would speak to them. And each of them are right now sentenced to 20 to 40 years, depending on their involvement in South Dakota in the penitentiary. But she would share the gospel with him so clearly, it was unbelievable. It just it blew me away. And she would, she would talk to the families and to these moms and dads who are also suffering as their kids are getting ready to go to prison. Well, there was a story about a year or so ago in Kelloland News, you can go look it up. Um, there's a story about Carolyn 
she began to write letters to these four boys. She began to share the gospel with them. And from what I understand is that I think all four of them, but at least three of them for sure, have come to know Christ. And she is through letters and through visits, she's discipling these boys in prison. She's caring for their families. She knows their moms and dads. Um, and you look, at, you look at all that she's been through and you go, that's a person who gets the gospel. In fact, I think many of us would say, you're crazy. There's no way I could forgive my son's killer. No way. No chance. It'd be impossible. And the reality is you'd be right. It is impossible. And it was impossible for Carolyn too. But when you press into the gospel and you really understand God's unbelievable grace for you and for me, then you become like Carolyn. And there's absolutely nothing that you can't do. And to see the grace of God in her life, and it costs her a lot, and yet to see her love these boys and care for these boys is an incredible testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, I can only hope that I would be like Carolyn. That God's grace would be so deep in my life that I would press so far into it that if I'm called upon to love in that way, and I think, frankly, if we put ourselves in places in our community and with people who don't know Jesus, we will be put in those positions. If we are called upon to love in that way, we would be like Carolyn. You see, a definition of love, true love, the kind of love that God has for you, is giving to someone at whatever cost to yourself that which will satisfy their lives not for five minutes, not for five hours, not for five years, not for 50 years, but will satisfy them for eternity. To love people, to truly love our enemies and to love people is to do whatever it takes at whatever cost to ourselves to give them what will be an eternal reward, which is to give them Jesus. Amen? Let us press in to this reality. I, I, I believe with all my heart that this world is drawn to people like this. The news organization that is so godless in that town, honestly, I know these people, they sought her out. They want to talk about stories like this. There's something attractive about a life that is lived like that. If we are to have an impact right here for the name of Christ, we need to pray for God to make us those kind of people. For God to cause us to be so gripped by the gospel that we could love our enemies that we could, we could even take abuse in the name of Jesus and love back. May God make us those kind of people. And it's going to take prayer. It's going to take a pressing into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us be those kind of people. Let us make that kind of an impact on our world. Let us be hated because we love widows and orphans and the vulnerable in our community. And we don't punch back. Let's pray.